Joel and Esteban are on their way home from Florida. They had the joy of going down to um, be in uh, Preston's wedding yesterday. And uh, so that's really sweet. And it's sweet to be able to kind of, as our relationships grow as a church, to be able to kind of send people off to things, you know, just in love of those who have been a, a sweet part of us and participate. Several weeks ago, I went to Omaha, Nebraska, to just kind of be a blessing to a friend who was being installed as the pastor there. And um, I hope it's just always a part of the heart of our church to just love people beyond the walls of our church. So really sweet. They're on the way home, and uh, Lord, be merciful and bring them home safely. And congratulations to Preston. Luke chapter 23, um, we're going to be in verses 1 through 16 today. We're going to spend a little time, you know, working through the uh, narratives of Christ's suffering The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, just one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, if not the first 11 verses, my favorite chapter in Scripture. But he just says, I want to know Christ. And then he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so... Um, my hope is, as we kind of work through Luke chapter 23 and 24, that your love for Jesus and, and just your want to, you know, just your want to, um, to know Jesus a little bit more, just grows a little bit. Um, and your want to know and share in the fellowship of his sufferings uh, just grows just a little bit. You know, as. You know, we've been in Luke for a long time, as you know, right? It's like a running joke, okay? But, um, and so I was kind of thinking as we're winding down, I'm like, well, we could just kind of tie this up together pretty quickly and we'll finish up Luke. And then, you know, I'm reading through Luke chapter 22 and 23 and, and 24 and I'm just thinking, we haven't rushed anything in Luke at all for years. So why would we rush through this? And uh, I don't know where I got that idea that we would kind of just finish up here um, over a few weeks, but uh, we're not going to do that. And I hope that just as we take some time here just to think about Christ and his suffering, that your want to, just your want to grows a little bit to love him and to know him and to share in his sufferings. I titled this particular message, No King Like Jesus. There is no king like Jesus, it is very, it's very important <laughs> that we see the reign and kingship of Christ even in the midst of his sufferings. And um, he is going to be contrasted with, you're going to see him in contrast to the Jews and to Pilate and to Herod here in this text. And this is why the title of the message is No King Like Jesus. And so um, let's just walk into this verse 20 or chapter 23 verse 1 so they've condemned Jesus right what further testimony do we need they've arrested him and what are they going to do now we've we've heard him confess that he is God the son right there at the end of chapter 22 chapter 23 verse 1 then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. 
Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. That you have said so is similar to what just happened at the end of verse 22, right? It is as you say, or you, you speak rightly of me. You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, notice the charges that are actually brought against Jesus. So what do they say? We found this man misleading our nation. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Okay, just on those two. The whole way the Bible talks about Jesus, and even in the Old Testament when it talks about Jesus, it talks about the Messiah being the one who would be the perfect Israel, the ideal Israel, the picture of what the nation was supposed to be from the beginning. And so what is this charge that here is the one misleading the nation? It's just false witness and lie, right? None of this is true. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Wasn't it Jesus who said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's? Wasn't it Jesus who who is like, go get the fish. And it's got, got a coin in its mouth to pay taxes. So it's nonsense. It's just nonsense forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, right? What are they trying to do? All they're trying to do is use false witness and slander to try to uh, rile up the Roman leaders like Pilate and soon will be Herod to get rid of him. That's all they want. All they want is to get rid of him. All they want is Jesus dead. Their bloodlust here is, it's, it's hard to imagine how much they just want him dead. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Of course, that's not entirely untrue, but it's not true in the sense that, right, when they say that, remember what they mean. When they say the word Messiah, remember what they mean, not what you know the Messiah means. What they want is to um, threaten the Roman rulers with, a king who's going to revolt against them. That's what, that's what they're trying to say. So they're not saying anything that's true about Jesus. It's all false witness and all slander. You know, and you just think about anything that is true today. You think about, you know, what I've been thinking about is... Um, I think the reason that false shepherds slander true shepherds the most is because true shepherds are actually their greatest thorn in their side. True shepherds are the one who are their threat to doing all of their work for sordid gain, you know, and their own self-aggrandizement and fame. And this is why false shepherds will endlessly slander true shepherds with false witness. You know... Of course, you all know we've worked through various situations over the last couple of years, and you know some of those become situations where you're actually working with other churches to try to bring to resolution. Our um, elders sent a letter to one church, kind of outlining 
what we thought worldly sorrow would be and godly sorrow would be and the difference between the two and, um, and what it would take for there to be genuine repentance. And, uh, and we were thorough. We were thorough because we didn't want repentance to be shallow. And we don't want you harmed. We don't want you harmed and not healed by a false peace and a false reconciliation in situations that have been very harmful and very hurtful and very difficult. And, um, but our hearts really are, if there's actual repentance and a kind of an embracing of the consequences, I mean, reconciliation's really pretty easy. It's really pretty easy. Bringing forth the fruit of repentance might not be easy. Bringing forth the fruit of repentance might not be easy. But reconciliation's really pretty easy. And of course, you know, we knew this was going to happen. You know, some churches have a reputation amongst all the other faithful churches in our town of just disrespecting the discipline of the faithful. You know, they just have a reputation for it. And so we, you know, we wrote it all out because that was what was requested. And we get the email back that just says, you know, you guys are a cult and this is excessively burdensome. (laughs) And you just think, you know. And now you all are suspicious. Well, was it excessively burdensome? And I just think, look at our lives. Has what we've done, has, 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 has our ministry to you been excessively burdensome? You know? Has it been endless rules and regulations that have just weighed you down? You know? Have we not given our hearts to you in humility and love? You know? Have you not received of our kindness? And when we have disciplined you, has it just most of the time been actually a help to you and set you free and not weighed you down with excessively burdensome. You know, this is just the slander and false witness of shepherds who will not do their job and who have no love in their churches and who compromise on everything that matters today. And it's just waving a magic wand over everything. Just brush it under the rug with the word grace. It's actually kind of a form of sorcery with the word grace. Just wave the magic wand of grace and all sin goes away and everything just should be better. And everybody just say the word grace three times and every hurt and every heartache and every pain and every sin is just just gone. And we should not be surprised. Our dear Lord, because we're guilty, right? We're guilty of many things. Many charges that could be brought against any of us at any point in time could have some truth to them or could be true. But this is our dear Lord just submitting Himself to the false witness and slander of the entire nation. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. And Pilate knows there is no guilt in this man. And so what of us? Of course we're going to be falsely accused. Of course it's going to be normal in the Christian life for us to have to bear up under slander and false witness. Remember, you're going to be... I mean, how many of you have have dealt with this with your parents? How many? All of you. Almost. Right? Or your family or your siblings or your in-laws or something. How many of you have dealt with this reality? And I just I want to encourage you with this. You have to keep this in mind. You cannot just run to despair, you know, and you can't compromise your faith under pressure. What do you do when these kinds of things are happening? 
Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Falsely. On my account. Isn't that interesting? You do the work of Christ. It's on His account that you suffer and all the kinds of things and evil we've spoken against you falsely. If they did it to our Lord, who had no guilt whatsoever, which is the main theme probably of Luke chapter 23, it's going to come up again and again and again. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Have faith when you're spoken against falsely. When you experience evil on account of Christ, have faith and rejoice and be glad and praise God. Because no one is spoken evil of falsely on Christ's account and is found... Well, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before Rejoice and be glad. You know? <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Somebody would speak evil about us. Praise God for it. I mean, if no one was speaking evil about us, what in the world are we doing in the day in which we live? Right? Are you with me? I mean... You're going to be hated for the most basic truth today. The most basic effort at being a Christian. You don't even have to be sold out for Jesus. Just the most basic effort at faithfulness to Jesus. It will be twisted. And I want want you to hear. I want you to hear this. By the way. If you ever want something on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. J.C. Ryle has these two volumes in Luke and John and one volume in Mark, and it's just so wonderful. I wish, and it's not, you know, this isn't commentary. This is more like his teaching to 12-year-olds, and that's why I find it so helpful for me. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's probably about my intellectual level, Okay. So I just find it extremely helpful for me. (laughs) If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call them of his household? Nothing is too bad to be reported against a saint. Nothing is too bad to be reported against a saint. Perfect innocence is no fence against enormous lying, calumny, and misrepresentation. The most blameless character will not secure us against false tongues. We must bear the trial patiently. It is part of the cross of Christ. We must sit still, lean back on God's promises, and believe that in the long run, truth will 
prevail. Rest in the Lord, says David. Wait patiently for him. He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noon day. Nothing is too bad to be reported against a saint. In other words, the point being, every evil imaginable a Christian will be called. Every evil imaginable a Christian will be called. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. This is, this is the mark of people who will be with God in heaven. This is their mark. I'm not sure anything else marks them so clearly as this does. And if this is what the clearest mark is of the faithful to Christ is their suffering, then why would you not want it? Why would you not want it? All right, Pilate says to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent. In a minute, we're going to see that they're vehement. That they're urgent. They're urgent. Their desire to kill Jesus is uh, so inordinate that all truth and all reason no longer matter. And when you want something bad enough, all truth and all good reason no longer matter. That's what's happening here. So, Pilate hears their accusations, right? But then they say, he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. So Pilate hears Galilee. Oh, he's, is he a Galilean? Because that's somebody else's jurisdiction, not mine. Somebody else needs to handle this. And of course, Pilate, very wisely, you know, if he can kind of, kind of clear his name of whatever is about to go down here and kind of hand it off to Herod, oh, this is my way out. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So it's, it's very convenient. We're at the Passover. Herod is here. And um, he doesn't really have to even send him very far. So he sends him over to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign or some miracle done by him. Now, you think what you know about Herod up to this point, Herod's a wicked man. He's married to Philip, his brother's wife, John the Baptist, all the way back in Luke chapter 3, is preaching to Herod about this. Herod is responsible for the murder of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of Jesus Christ preaching in the wilderness, returning the hearts of the fathers to their children and preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Herod's guilty for his death. He is a wicked, wicked ruler. And yet, Jesus has made enough stir that Herod's very clearly aware of 
hearing things about what Jesus has done because the amount of things that Jesus has done can't be recorded in this book. John tells us they're so beyond anything anybody could record. He's a wicked man. And so when he's glad to see Jesus, right? you know he's not glad to see Jesus. He's glad to see Jesus kind of like this. Um, Have any of y'all ever been to I love the sun, I love the sun, I love the sun. Wasn't that fascinating watching the lyrics go in and out at the whims of the light in this room? (laughs) Just tell yourself you love the sun when that's happening. Um, Have any of y'all ever been to like any kind of a magic show? You know, you have to kind of be careful about them because a lot of times they're a little... I don't know what the word is, risque. But uh, I think I've been to three pretty major ones over the course of my life, and I was always kind of intrigued by magic and illusion, you know, because that's the way you can lie and get away with it. And you realize most magic is just total gimmick, right? You know, if you're scared of, you know, the magicians that you see on America's Got Talent doing these crazy things that seem demonic, um... Just go to the magic shop over in Brown County and spend four ninety nine on a magic trick and have him teach you how it's done, and it will kill that forever for you. Because all magic is stupid. It's just stupid. But to the person who doesn't know how stupid it is, it's magical. And so I was always so excited to go to a few different ones, three major ones, I think, in the course of my life. and Why? Why Why was I always so glad? Because there's something in the human heart, right, that delights in wanting to see, kind of to be mesmerized by something that's impossible. You know, and so that's what a magician's job is to do, right, is to kind of leave you with this thought that something impossible just happened, right? And underneath it all is probably something very stupid. But what you think is something impossible just happened. And so, and, and so when I think about when it says here that Herod is very glad to see Jesus because he's heard about him and he wants to see some sign done by him, I kind of imagine Herod being kind of like that. He, he, he wants, he's heard things about Jesus and he wants to see Jesus do something impossible. Do, I want to see what I've heard about, you know? And kind of like a... Um, you know, wants to, wants to make Jesus kind of a character in his circus. Entertain me, fascinate me, satisfy my curiosities. You know, all the temptations that come with wealth and money and power. I've heard he does impossible things. What does Jesus do? Well, Herod questions him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. He made no answer. Jesus doesn't answer Herod here. You know, Jesus could have defended himself before Herod, sure. It wouldn't even have been wrong for him to do so, necessarily. What do you think Jesus knows? Jesus isn't... Jesus is 
Jesus is actually becoming Herod's servant here, just like he was becoming yours and mine. And Jesus isn't going to, Jesus isn't going to submit to Herod's plan to make him a, a circus act. And if he does wield some power here publicly, what will be the immediate threat to Herod? Here's someone more powerful than me who can overthrow my reign here. But Jesus didn't come for that. So Jesus withholds all of the exercise of his power and just appears as nothing to Herod. Just appears as nothing. Everything at this point for Herod, everything about Jesus cannot be true. Ultimately, this is Isaiah 53, right? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Jesus doesn't want to appear as the one who's greatest in power. He doesn't want to appear here as the kind of king who wields all authority. Jesus came to die. And so what do what happens? Right. What does Herod think about Jesus? The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Here's Jesus just standing there. No answer. Completely subject to their authority over him. And they just keep accusing him. So Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Well, what has to have happened here? Why would Herod do that? Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. In a moment, Pilate's going to acknowledge that Herod found no guilt in Jesus either. So why does he treat him with contempt and mock him? Well, you can imagine, you can imagine someone, you know, I'm speculating a little bit, but you can imagine someone like Herod going, if he's stirred up the people this much, he's probably done something wrong. And he probably needs to pay for it a little bit, and maybe this will be enough to just get the people to settle back down and we can just restore peace, right? Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And here's a key phrase, then arraying him in splendid clothing. What is Herod doing? I've heard that he says he is Christ a king. I will array him in royal splendor and in royal robes and make a mockery of this kind of a king. He sent him back to Pilate. In verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. We don't know why they they were hostile to one another. We don't know if it was a power battleground or some squabble that had occurred. We have no idea. But we know the killing and mocking and the treatment of Jesus brought Pilate and Herod together to be friends. 
And as I read that, I just thought to myself, I just thought, how easy it is for birds of an evil feather to flock together. How quickly men can be, how quickly men can be united in what is evil, though they hate each other for all kinds of other reasons themselves. Think about the hatred between people all across the world for all kinds of reasons, or in our nation for all kinds of reasons, but when it comes to Christ, they're united in killing Him. And so Jesus is... There's no king like Him. He is arrayed in splendid clothing as he should be, but not for mockery, but for honor. Herod confessed of Jesus better than he knew. Herod confessed of Jesus by arraying him in royal robes better than he knew because he is saying, if you're a king, you're an awfully suffering one. Isn't that our Lord? The suffering King. When you look at Jesus, there is absolutely no majesty about Him whatsoever. There's no majesty. You think about Herod and palaces and splendor and having servants and armies at His disposal and here is Jesus standing alone with no answer. Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So humble is our dear Lord, King Jesus. You know, sometimes we say of a rich man, well, you'd never know it by looking at him. You know, you kind of like those rich people better. It's kind of like what's how you understand Jesus. There's no way to see any majesty in him. Isaiah 53.2. Also, he receives no praise. No praise. Vehement accusation. Constant evil and false witness spoken against him. Do you think in a day like this where the kings are worshipped, you know, and the emperor is worshipped, and Caesar's, you know, you live in Caesar's house, and you bow down to Caesar. No one is bowing down to Jesus here. There is no praise and no honor given to him. He is, as Isaiah 53 says, despised and rejected my men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. No majesty, no praise, no harsh burdens. You think about what kings do, right? Think about Pharaoh, make more bricks. Think about Herod, do a magic trick for me. Jesus not giving harsh burdens, but actually taking all the burden upon himself. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know, in some ways, Jesus, well, in every way, Jesus is the one who satisfies the longing of the human heart to have someone who's of great power be for the people. You know, you shouldn't despise today's youth. You shouldn't despise those who are in their teens and 20s right now. You just ought not to despise them. Um, They're really wonderful in many, many, many ways. One of the things that is certainly, if you pay attention at all to our culture, is the cry of their heart is a longing to see someone of power before the people. You know, in a day where, you know, they're tired of corporate America and the burdens it lays on people, and they're, you know, not always for the right reasons. You know, I have, I have a sympathy with a lot of corporations for all kinds of reasons. So I'm not saying, I'm not trying to speak negatively, but the way oftentimes people perceive it, just trying to get out of the sun. There we go. Um, someday, apparently, like smoke follows beauty, the sun does too. But I started thinking about, you know, why is there this kind of, why is Elon Musk so loved by young people? Well, because he's outrageously rich in fields of technology, which are the spirit of our age, but he kind of comes across as the guy who's for the common man. It's kind of the way he always is presenting himself, as the guy for the common man. So a lot of young people love him for that. And I realized that Jesus is so wonderfully here, the king for the people. And it's so beautiful watching him give up his entire life for his people and suffer for his people. He's, he's not like any other king who everything about him is self-aggrandizement and narcissism. I had to get the word of the day in every once in a while, narcissism. You know, because that's just the word every, all the kids are saying. Of course, all the kids don't think they're narcissists. <laughs> He's a king for the people. You know, in a day when bureaucrats love only themselves, Jesus is attractive. He is the lowly savior. And it's important. These are important truths to proclaim to a day like ours. Now, does he demand repentance and faith? Yeah, oh yeah. He is a lowly savior and he is a king for the people. And he is a king who reigns. He demands repentance of faith, of course. We do repentance and faith, not just bring blessing and freedom. And so in our gospel preaching and our witness to Christ, it's important to remember this about Christ because it adorns him in his condescending grace and suffering. There's no narcissism in him, right? All we have here is the limitless generosity and sacrifice of our Lord. 
It isn't about how I can grow my thing. It's I'm giving everything to you. And then finally, I would say this. There's no guilt in Jesus. Let me say one thing before that. There's no narcissism, but rather he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, listen for a second. When we read in Luke's gospel, what have we seen? We have constantly seen Jesus in conflict. We have constantly seen Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, rebuking the Sadducees, you know, correcting his disciples. And you see this intensity about Jesus, our Lord, constantly. The whole time he's on earth, he's in conflict, right? And I want you to think for a second. If you have thought, as we've studied Luke's gospel, that Jesus is so intense in such a way that he's intimidating to me, or he's... Um, you know, somehow he's someone that I should, I should merely be afraid of, you know, because of his plainness of speech or these warnings that he gives over and over and over again. Or all the fighting, right? Remember this, that all of his fighting is to protect and preserve the gospel. All of his fighting is to protect and preserve the gospel and the gospel of a lowly Savior who will be a king who dies for his people. All of it. All of the fighting is is not just fighting with a heart that will alienate people and a heart that's just, he's not just trying to be needlessly offensive all the time. What he's trying to do is fight for the sake of what will actually bring real humility and repentance. That's all he's doing. Just remember that. Big picture, that's all he's doing. And so in all of our fighting, that's what we're doing. We're fighting against the human heart and life for the sake of real humility and real repentance. But in Jesus, he's not like any other king. There's no guilt. I already told you about Herod. How does this end? Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, verse 13, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Never underestimate the ability of an evil authority to be more right in their judgment than a person who just wants something. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. I will therefore punish and release him. Jesus is not like any other king. He's done nothing wrong and is giving up his life for you. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your sufferings. Thank you that as we look at the suffering Christ, we're reminded it's only Christ by which we can be saved. 
that the King of glory dying for His people is the only hope we have of our sins ever being forgiven, is the only hope we have of a worthy sacrifice atoning atoning for our sins, paying for all the guilt and bearing all its burden in Himself. And apart from Him, we have absolutely nothing. And so we stand on Christ alone, our only hope of salvation. And we thank You that as we look at His suffering, it removes all boasting in ourselves and boasting in our works as if we could add to this. As we, if we could add to the evil done to Jesus. As if we could add to the wrath of God being poured out upon Him. So thank you for this reminder, even on Reformation Sunday, that we look to Christ and we look to Christ alone and there is no hope for us and for our friends and family and neighbors apart from Him. And so we preach Him. Father, we pray that You would bless that effort in here and out there for Your name's sake. Bear fruit through the preaching of the cross of Christ crucified and nothing else. May Your churches heart grow in love and want to know Jesus and obey him. In his name we pray. Amen.